Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Part of what I, I guess, believe in the, that's really driven me the most is, is trying to fight for people who get blamed for stuff that is social injustice. It isn't them. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this conversation with Polly Neat. Polly is the CEO of Shelter, a British homelessness and housing charity that campaigns for tenant rights. Now, that might sound like an Adventure Podcast curveball, but I actually came across Polly on Twitter when she replied to a comment saying that she was a listener to the podcast. Polly is also a passionate outdoors woman and she's fallen in love with rock climbing. In this episode, we talk about her life of adventure and how she manages to squeeze it into a very busy work schedule. And while she had the platform to do so, Polly also talked about her work at Shelter and the crisis we face with homelessness in Britain. Okay, over to Polly Neat. It would be great if you could just introduce yourself and tell me who you are and what you do and what that means to you. Gosh, do you mean what do I do for a living? Uh, yeah, who do are I do? all of it? Who are all you? What does that it. mean? Oh my word! Okay, so um, I'm Polly Neat, and I am the chief executive of Shelter, which is a homelessness charity that probably people, lots of people, will have heard of. And I've had a career in. I guess I would describe it as a career in striving for social justice. That's what's important to me in my work life. And when I'm not working, increasingly, I spend lots and lots of time climbing, not to a very high level because I'm a middle-aged woman with arthritis. I've actually also broken my ankle recently (laughs) climbing. Um, had quite a bad accident but I very late in life have found that I love to I love climbing I love the outdoors I love to have my own kinds of adventures but I also see my work life as an adventure too a bit yeah so amazing me and have you always been I hate the word but have you always been outdoorsy and adventurous or interested in the natural world um to an extent, but um, yes, I've always loved to be outside, definitely, and I've always loved to be outdoors, but I've lived in London my entire life, and growing up, I was um, really sort of pigeonholed as somebody who would never, ever succeed in any form of physical activity at all, so 
um, I didn't really find, you know, the, that the just shit. I mean, climbing is just the absolute joy of movement, isn't it? The joy of what you can do with your own body in a beautiful, challenging, exciting environment. I only found that at the age of 50, which is quite sad, really. Um, so I guess um, I haven't always been, I don't think, I've always loved the outdoors and I've always loved, yes, the natural world, but I couldn't describe myself as having always been outdoorsy. I think anyone who knew me for the first sort of two thirds of my life would just laugh because they'd just be like, um, no. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> so I just, I, so I think I sort of have found it, you know, and um, now I can't get enough of it. Does that make and sense? So, yeah, and I would definitely want to come on to all of that, but I think we'll go chronologically, so we'll get there later in life. But um, what inspired you to head down the route that you did professionally, and how did that happen? Um, so I started my professional life as a journalist, actually, and I really believed that I... But I wanted to make a difference, and I really believed that I could make a difference as a journalist. And I came to realise, I really enjoyed it, but I came to realise that actually the, I felt the difference I could make as a journalist was very, very limited. And I became, I felt quite restricted by the sort of news prism that you have to see everything through if you're a journalist. And I wanted to get out of that and try to change things, I guess, in a more direct way. But I'm not somebody who could, um, my skills aren't directly helping people. I always, what I can try and do, I guess, is influence people for change. That's my, that's my job. That's what I think I'm good at. And so that's what led me into, to move into charities and really trying to campaign and work for change and influence and to use the experiences and help people to use the experiences that they have of being at the sharp end of social injustice um, to, I guess, create the material for the fight for change. And so there must have been a transitional moment where you realised that you didn't want to be a journalist anymore or did something happen by oh, accident? Yeah, there was. No, it didn't happen by accident. I, I actually, so I was offered two what would have been considered really good jobs in journalism as my, like, next move. And when I realised I didn't want to do either of them, I realised that I didn't want to be a journalist anymore. <laughs> and, I, and I was getting frustrated with... I thought there would be better ways to use a similar set of skills for better effect. And I was, I was becoming increasingly aware of my, how incredibly fortunate I was. And I felt I was becoming quite complacent, really. Um, so I was doing this in, interesting, fun job, making a decent amount of money, and not really changing any of the stuff that I'd come into it wanting to change, I guess, is, is how I felt about it. So what did you do? 
So I went and got a job at uh, a charity called Action for Children um, to start with. Um, and then from there, I moved to become the chief executive of Women's Aid. And I think it was there that I, um, that I really felt a, an absolute sort of passion and real commitment to trying to make things better and trying to change things for women who experience domestic abuse. And that was a huge, that job was huge for me. It In really was. It, it was just, um, I just felt so, I didn't think much could shock me really, but learning about those women's experiences and what they'd been through, understanding more and more about about domestic abuse, I started to understand the control that's at the centre of all domestic abuse and realised that there wasn't an adequate legal framework to protect victims of domestic abuse from that. And that was, and, and I really, so one of the big campaigns that um, I was part of running women's aid was to get coercive control to be made a criminal offence which we did do um and I think that has met that has definitely made a, a difference a real difference and it was something that I felt incredibly passionate about that was a tangible change that I could help to bring about and that was when I started to um and and there was a lot of you know, if you're if you run Women's Aid, you might as well walk around with feminist tattoos on your head, and so people don't like you. Quite a lot of people don't like you, <laughs> um, and so I sort of at the set, and that kind of fired me up, you know, as well. So I would get I would get loads of grief on Twitter. I've had my house egged. I've had my tires slashed, and it kind of, in a way, it, it made me realise what you're up against fighting for those women, you know, uh, and what they're up against. Well, I, I feel like we need to backtrack slightly because it's from my naive position. If people are going to get that angry about pe someone who campaigns for women, that just shows the world we're in, doesn't it, where this level of violence against women is possible. Yes, because who's... So I was really super passionate about because that. Because who's anti... You know, I'm I'm actually a little bit speechless and confused. So, who's anti securing safety and reducing, you know, coercive and controlling behaviour? Well, men's rights activists mainly. Um, I don't really want to talk too much about them because, <laughs> I mean, to be, you know, um, it's a bit it's a bit like all lives matter, isn't it? Or what about white lives? Yeah. You know, when people talk about the Black Lives Matter movement yeah. and all that crap that you hear, it's a bit yeah. like that. It's like this constant, you know, um, yeah, you hate so, men and what about men and all this. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, men have got lots of problems too. Yeah, which should be talked about. Yeah, yeah, totally. But I, regularly that, under that wasn't banners. what I was being paid to do. I was being paid to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's also there's this. I've got this bizarre idea, right? Which is, you know, it's, I don't think it's particularly revolutionary. Which is, we could probably talk about both. Oh yeah. 
(laughs) (laughs) We probably can. And, you know, like totally. I mean, it's it's being in that job was, it was a real fight and it was, um, it was something I felt really, really passionately about. And it, and it had a huge, yeah, it did have a huge, huge effect on me as a feminist and just as a person. It, it was brilliant. Um, but what, while I was doing it, I really did, it, it did hit me how fundamental the whole issue about housing and homelessness is to domestic abuse because, you know, at Women's Aid, week in and week out, you would see women risking their lives every day in an incredibly dangerous situation because they didn't want to make themselves and their children homeless and because they knew that if you become homeless in this country, there's nothing, forget it, there's nothing for you. And um, so when the job at Shelter came up, it was too tempting. I just felt like, wow, this is an opportunity to make a difference in something that I've seen all my career is a, is a huge, huge problem. And not enough people yeah. are interested in it, you know. People are super interested in the NHS and they're quite interested in education, but they're not very interested in housing. Yeah. No, and I would like to come on to that in detail. I think before we do, you know, when you're at Women's Aid, as you said before we started, you know, you're used to talking about these issues a lot, but not so much about yourself. And I'm interested as to what that did to you as a person. You know, you said, I mean, I'm not quoting directly, but I'm sensing a very purposeful existence where, you know, you had a lot of um, power is the wrong word, but you you had the, the opportunity to create change. But yeah. as a as a person, as a human being, you were threatened. You know, tires slashed house. How how was that? It was the worst moment of it was. So my youngest daughter was um, playing in our kitchen, which has quite a lot of windows that face onto the road, and she had friends round from school, and suddenly there was this huge sound on the of. Well, it wasn't even clear what it was. It was like a loads of banging. It's hard to describe how loud it is being in a not particularly large room when eggs are being chucked at the windows. <laughs> it's really loud. It's really, really loud. And um, that was awful because I just didn't want her to be in that situation, especially with her friends around. And it that made me feel um, angry. Yeah. That was kind of the worst, the worst moment of it. But it also made me feel, you know, I don't really like talking about it that much. You can probably tell because I keep hesitating. I don't really like talking about it that much because um, it was such a minor experience compared to what the women that we were fighting for were going through. It was so minor and it was part of the same phenomenon, if you like. I mean, it was part of misogyny. And, you know, if you're looking at a spectrum of misogyny, what I was experiencing was right at one end and what millions of women experience is right at the other end. I mean, life-threatening. And so I also, I didn't want to kind of, um, I didn't want to focus too much on that. I, I just wanted to, yeah, I just wanted to do the job I was paid to do, you know. And do it 
really well and it made me want to do it. It made me more sort of fired up about it. I don't know if this is making any sense at all. It makes total <laughs> sense. But I want to challenge you if you'll let me. And you're very, <laughs> yeah, very, no, you're very welcome to disagree with me. Um, but I think it's really important to let, and maybe this is just true of me. I don't know. I read a book about it that helped me. But you, you, just because your negative experience wasn't as bad as somebody else's on the scale, it doesn't mean. Oh, God, that's so true. You know. You're so right. And actually, do you know what? Um, a colleague of mine, a, a colleague of mine at Shelter, the other day said to me, "Oh, you know, I feel guilty when I worry about my own problems." And this is a woman with some difficult things to deal with. And she goes, "I feel guilty when I worry about my problems because all the people we work with who are homeless have like such terrible lives." And I was like, "Well, they don't feel guilty worried about that because they're not in a refugee camp in Syria, or and those people don't feel guilty because they're alive." So, like, uh, completely, you're totally and utterly right, and I to- I stand corrected. <laughs> <laughs> well, not corrected as such. I'm more just no, curious no, you're right, about um, because it. But I, yeah. Go on. But I just always, I've always, all my life, felt incredibly lucky in pretty much every aspect of my life, and so any negative experience that I have has to be set against that enormous good fortune that I've had all my life to be um you know a happy resilient person doing stuff that I really love doing you know what I mean so I think like so I just that's all I mean I just try and set it against all of that really and also honestly I'm not a very risk averse person in fact that's a real understatement I'm the least risk averse person I know in a professional context like I have to have as a CEO I have to in my leadership team I have to have people who are quite risk averse and worried about because otherwise you know I can't leave myself to my own devices risk-wise <laughs> which can be quite useful yeah oh it's a quality for sure but it needs to be balanced doesn't it with other people's qualities yeah so when you made the move to shelter Mm. what because the you know ceo everyone knows what one of those is that's Mm. you know you're the big boss what was that like and what have you been doing and give me the give me the facts what do i need to know that i don't know oh what do you need to know uh do you know the biggest thing people need to know i think is that homelessness is huge and it's at least a quarter of a million people at any one time but they're not the people sleeping rough the the real homeless that not that that isn't a massive issue but the real homelessness crisis is hundreds of thousands of people in horrible bed and breakfast hotels and hostels and converted office blocks and um you know you've got a corridor and you've got rooms off each side and each one of those rooms has got a whole family in it and you've got a shared bathroom at one end and a shared kitchen at the other end that's the reality of homelessness and they might have to move at any time and their prospect of getting a decent home is remote to say the least and it's just um that kind of grinding day-to-day 
awful experience and destitution that people are in that's the real that's the real issue and to me I think if people understood that because people always say to me um well you know haven't people got all kinds of other problems it's not just that they haven't got a home and I'm like no it is that they haven't got a home actually like you can say oh they they're drinking and they've got mental health issues and all of that well so god so would I fundamentally they haven't got a home and that actually is the problem (laughs) well and when whether it was I mean I'm I'm speaking to somebody significantly more qualified to comment than me but whether the drink and the drugs or whatever led to the homelessness or whether the homelessness led to the what these are illnesses rather than crimes as it were well then yes and also I know um, you know, I had a fairly privileged upbringing and I can tell you, I know a lot of people who've had drink problems and drug problems. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, yes, people drink and people take drugs, but the problem, the homelessness is the clues in the word. It's people not having a home and the fact that we don't live in a society that is able to provide a decent home for everyone um, or anywhere near, we're nowhere near doing that. But no do you think that's do you think that's public perception? Because when you you know when you think or when I'll say when I when I think of a homeless person, I picture a mid twenties to mid thirties guy who looks a bit rough and tumble, looks like an ex squaddy, sat outside a co op. That's what I picture. Or I picture mm. a single mum with four kids smoking. You know mm. what's the reality, and how do these people get into that situation? Um. So the reality could be either of those two things. I don't know. I mean, um, and as you rightly say, looking a bit rough or maybe drinking a lot is not a crime. Smoking certainly isn't a crime. Um, I used to smoke myself, actually. (laughs) So am I not allowed to say that? No, of course you could say that. (laughs) Oops. Um, Not recently, I should add. Um, but, you know, none of those things are crimes, are they? So I think uh, what is the reality of who is homeless? It's, it's the whole spectrum of people. So, yes, parents and children are homeless. And, yes, single men uh, who've been in the forces are homeless. Um, as I said, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of people who are homeless. And there are even more who are kind of on the verge of homelessness and that's only going to get worse. And I mean, it's going to get worse imminently because we're in a cost of living crisis um, and uh, we're not building, we're still not building any homes that people on low incomes can actually afford to live in. So what happens normally to precipitate someone losing their home is that they are normally renting privately which is incredibly expensive, as lots of people will be well aware. Um, yeah, it's very, very, very expensive. And um, you, you know, something happens in their life and they can't afford their rent and they get evicted and they can't afford a decent home. And they go to their local council and they say, I'm homeless. And the local council has no social housing to give them at all because there isn't any being built. And so they end up in a very, very difficult situation, um, like a bed and breakfast or similar, um, really unsuitable, horrible environment. 
And um, with, as I say, very little prospect of getting out of that. So what I realise with, you know, this is actually should be a three-part special with somebody much cleverer than me, but what's the solution? Oh, blimey. Well, actually, do you know what? The solution is really straightforward, which is that um, instead of building loads of luxury flats all over the place, um, that people, actually a lot of them are even empty, instead of building loads of luxury flats that there isn't really a market for, we have to be building houses, homes that people on low incomes can actually afford to live in. That is it. It is that simple. And that's a matter of political will. It's a matter of the government needs to make a decision that that's what it wants to do. It fundamentally is that simple. Then there are like other things that need to happen. And we could get into the policy wonky detail of it, but I really don't want to do that. If you know, but fundamentally, uh, it's about deciding that it's a priority that people should have a decent home. And just to say as well, a decent home is the foundation, isn't it? So if you think about that family in one room in a bed and breakfast, for example, where like, I mean, I've been in quite a few rooms like this, the whole room is beds because there's no room for anything else. So everything is like on the bed and don't forget shared bathroom and kitchen. I mean, I've met one woman who was really worried because she thought her baby was about to be taken away from her because he wasn't meeting his milestones. He wasn't learning to crawl because there was no space to crawl at all in that room. You couldn't, and you wouldn't put a baby down, I can tell you, to crawl in the corridor outside the room. That's for sure. So, like, you're to- so the so so a decent home is the foundation that we build our lives on. If you don't have that, um, the challenge of building a decent life, ju- even just for yourself, never mind if you also have children, the challenge, of course, is too much for some people. Yeah. God, it's and it, I think so much of it, just thinking about it from my own perspective and my own prejudice, I suppose, is around visibility, isn't it? Because, as you said, I can't remember the other example, but you said the NHS. You know, we all see that, we all use that, we're all inspired right. by it, you know. But I think but the yeah. reason I say that deliberately slightly incendiary comment about the, the guy sat outside the co-op or the lady smoking with her kids, they are unsavoury images and people yeah, don't want to be. And that's the issue, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I think what the the other thing that I've kind of been trying to do, I think that's part of my whole career really, is trying to look beneath those unsavory images, trying to connect the reality of the lives of people who um who, if you run a charity, need your help, the reality of that with the general public because people have all kinds of stereotypical images about um, what sort of women experience domestic abuse as well. You know, we all have those stereotypes in our minds. And while we have those, they're a real barrier to change. The fact that those stereotypes are in everyone's minds um, is a huge barrier to that people like me face who are trying to get people interested in in a better society, I guess. Mm. As long as yeah. you can blame somebody for their own situation, why would you want to do anything about it? Well, you yeah. don't need to do anything about it, do you? You know. 
No. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Oh, God. Well, no, when, you know, it, there's so much I'd love to talk to you about, but it's more like, you know, bottle of wine conversation. But... Well, we can do that, absolutely. <laughs> um, but it... When, when you know, you first, you put something out on Twitter about an episode of this that you'd listened to and I replied yeah. and now we find ourselves here. But when I thought about why I wanted to speak with you, part of it was personal interest in everything we just, we've just been talking about and we'll carry on talking about. But part of it was there's, I read a book a while ago that basically talks about purposefulness and tribes and communities and actually how, you know, we have a middle class happiness epidemic crisis because we're a purposeless people in many ways before I go down too much of that kind of soapbox route I am intrigued as to whether or not you think this is and potentially very incendiary but I need to explain this as eloquently as I can people go on expeditions and they go on adventures because they're hard and because they're uncomfortable and because they're difficult and it gives them purpose and Mm it makes them feel something. Do you think that the majority of homeless people feel sad, depressed, disenfranchised, forgotten? Or is there an element of we're living our lives, we're doing the best we can? I mean, you'd have to... I've never been homeless, so it's quite difficult for me to say... From my experience of talking to people, uh, it it is psychologically and emotionally extremely challenging to be homeless. Yes. So people, I don't know how, I mean, I don't know how women I've met who've had the most unbelievable experiences, people who've survived um, a level of deprivation and destitution because they're homeless that I could not possibly get through myself so yes people do survive that with a sense of purpose intact and that is amazing and it is probably I believe it's some of the same spirit actually that people muster when they go when they have incredible adventures um and I'm quite interested in that because I think um so so I think the there is an amazing kind of survival ability that we have as people. But I also think being being homeless, for example, um, is a situation that nobody is going to big you up for or respect you for. Yeah. Or so you really have to do it on your own. And, I mean, we're there, like shelter is there for absolute sure, and I really passionately believe, actually, that we are an affirming experience for people that we deal with. But um, 
A, we can't help everybody. And B, it is a very, well, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's what is really meant by the term soul destroying, isn't it? I think yeah. that you're at serious psychological risk if you become homeless. But having said that, yes, absolutely, people fight through it and they overcome it. Um, and there is incredible, I mean, we have a scheme where we employ people who've formerly been homeless and we provide um, a whole training program and then many go on to get permanent jobs at shelter. And I mean, they are just amazing colleagues adding so much to the organisation. One of them, I really, really hope one day will be chief executive because really somebody who has had that experience should be in my job at the moment. I'm afraid that's not the case. So I really, you know, what I would love is one day one of those people to be sitting in my seat. So, you know, I guess that that adventure story of kind of triumph over adversity, you can tell that a hundred, hundred, hundred times about homelessness. But yes, it is a profoundly soul-destroying and very, very difficult experience. Does that answer your question? Yes, but it does, absolutely, because I think I'm achieving what I set out to, and unfortunately a lot of people have to listen to me work it out live. Um, but I think the fundamental difference is maybe pride and shame, that I would guess, because this book that I reference is um, one of the main things he talks about. It's called Tribe by Sebastian Junger, just I'm being quite cryptic. But he talks about there was a study done after the Blitz in the Second World War, and many people, majority I think, said that they missed it. And one guy was quoted as saying wow. he wouldn't want to get bombed every day, but maybe just once a week. And it was the sense of community that was built around that purposefulness, running out of their mm -hmm. houses to see what needed to be done. But I think as a society, it, listening to you, I think what we do is we, it's a shameful thing to be homeless, isn't it? We walk oh, past yeah. these people. We don't even acknowledge that their their humanity. It's very, um, there's an amazing guy called David Tovey, who's a wonderful artist. I'll have to like, when this comes out, I'll have to make sure he listens to it because um, <laughs> but I admire him enormously. And he's a, he has been in the army and he's been homeless and in very dangerous situations. But what he says is the worst thing is just being completely ignored. So, like, there could be a pile of rubbish on the street and there could be you on the street and you're treated exactly the same. Mm. So it's that dehumanisation. And I think, uh, and that's street homelessness, but I think people in all types of homelessness, you know, those mums in bed and breakfast, um, just feel absolutely judged, stigmatised, um, forgotten by society, not cared about, um, blamed absolutely yeah yeah and and um part of what i i guess believe in the that's really driven me the most is is trying to fight for people who get blamed for stuff that is social injustice it isn't them it's not their pathology it's not something about them that has made that happen as yeah. I said, you know, I grew up in a very privileged environment and I know lots of people, not that I don't feel sorry for them, of course I do. I know lots of people who've had huge problems and psychological challenges and addictions and all of that. Um, those things aren't unique to people who are homeless. 
No. Well, you don't. We're going to get bogged down in this one, but you look at alcohol. You know, how many yeah. high functioning middle class alcoholics do you know? Um, you know. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Exactly. Yeah. Quite a lot. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, and I don't want to be. Well, I'll use the story of my brother because it's easier. Yeah, but my brother, um, he's an interesting character. I adore him, but he's, um, yeah, a unique individual. And he spends a lot of time when he's walking around Sheffield going and sitting with homeless men usually, and he has a chat with them and for a long time, and he goes and buys them lunch, and then he has lunch with them. Now, is that something that we should be doing? Are we tokenizing it? Is that for us? Should we give them a pound as we walk past? You know, I think as well, there was oh a big gosh. campaign about stop giving homeless people money. There and- was, yeah. Oh, so this is, I have to be really careful what I say. So this is a real <laughs> personal point of view of mine. It isn't a shelter line, okay? So I personally believe, let's think about giving someone money first of all. If you want to give a homeless person some money, um, go ahead. But it's more for your benefit than theirs, I would say. So if that and that and that's like okay, you know, if it makes you feel better. But if you why do you just give a random person on the street your money? You wouldn't give someone else, you know, do you go around giving random people your money? I don't. No. God no. Because you've got no idea what they're going to do with it, have you? You don't know what anyone's going to do with it. Why would you? So, I mean, I would say if it makes you feel good to give homeless people your money, that's fine. Or you could give it to shelter. Much better idea. <laughs> um, but, but I think what your brother's doing, which is really acknowledging the humanity of somebody and sitting down and there's something symbolic about eating with a person, isn't there, and taking the time to do that. I think I'm actually pretty blown away by that. And I think individual actions, maybe I'm bigging up your brother too much, but I think think individual actions are important and are a sign of of your, your and that person's mutual humanity. Personally, I would probably stop short of the money, giving money, but I think giving people stuff they need, um, Absolutely. Money, it's so interesting you hats, say that. because Yeah. Well, because that's what blew my mind. Well, he, he does it all the time, but it's also his body language because he doesn't, when they're sat on the floor, he kneels when he speaks rather than stood over, if that makes yeah. sense. Even little subtle things. But anyway, oh, that's it's just massive. A, I mean, all the times in my life I've been in a wheelchair for a bit, um, just people who sit down next to you or cra- or squat down next to you to talk to you rather than bending over you if you're in a wheelchair. Blimey, yeah. I mean, I think even we and we kids as well, actually. Yeah. Getting yourself on a level is really important, isn't it? Yeah. Well, sorry, I've taken us down a little tangent there. We digress, but I'm That's really funny. interested in, you know, you've talked a little bit earlier about how well, guilt, essentially, and how your problems aren't very bad. But do you feel guilty for having a nice life? And Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> that's not guilt. I don't feel, no, don't feel guilty. Because that's a, I mean, I was brought up a Catholic. So I, I think I'm quite an expert on guilt because of that. Um, <laughs> so I, I think guilt is like a useful emotion. If you do something wrong, 
right? You feel guilty, good, might prompt you to do something about it. So I think feeling guilt, I don't, I don't have a downer on guilt, but I think you've got to inform it with your own morality and your own sense of what's right and wrong. And if you then do something that you think you shouldn't have done and you feel guilty, yeah. So, but I think feeling guilty about privilege, which is really what we're talking about, um, is a bit pointless. But I think being aware of it is really important and it should influence the way you behave and the way you live your life. If you acknowledge your privileges, I think they should inform your behaviour and your actions. But I don't think feeling guilty about being privileged, it has got any point. I mean, God, if I felt guilty about being privileged, I'd never go on Twitter because I'm every single day somebody's going on about how appalling it is that I earn a salary and... <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I should just be a volunteer and not be paid to do my job. So, like, that's a, like, common theme. So, like, but I don't, I, no, I don't feel guilty. No. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because then, and this is something, God, this is full philosophy today, but... um, I know. Sorry, sorry everyone. <laughs> I but thought you were going to ask me about climbing. I was we're going to we're gonna get there. It's going to be a happy finale. <laughs> no, don't worry. Until you fall off and then it <laughs> But um, <laughs> That's what um, I just did, don't yeah, you? Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> Um, well, it's the burden of privilege, right? And I say that with, with my, you know, my little smirk on the burden of privilege, because if you do, I feel the burden of privilege. I feel like yeah. I'm super, I've my, I won't give you the boring background, but I'm, I have traveled through different social economic backgrounds in my life via mm. my parents, um, who didn't have a lot and then got a bit more. And now I feel like I've got to do stuff because I'm happy and healthy and I've got enough money. And so I feel guilt for relaxing. I don't know. And this is, do you not? You feel guilty relaxing? Yeah. No, I love relaxing. (laughs) Maybe maybe you've done enough that you're allowed to. No, um, not at all. No, I didn't mean it like that. I mean, I think, um, I mean, being able to relax is a privilege. So enjoy it I mean crikey I mean I I think it'd be great if everybody had the space and opportunity in their life to spend time relaxing but I definitely have got over if I ever felt guilty about it I certainly don't now but it's an it's a nice segue in a way to like because obviously I'm fascinated by the outdoors and adventure and what it does to people and their sanity and mental health and purposefulness Mm. blah 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 so how what happened to you when you were 50 that led you to start well climbing climbing um oh it wasn't some kind of like midlife crisis it's really boring it was that um my youngest so my husband has climbed all his life um from a very young age and it's got a huge, huge meaning in his life. And I always knew that. And then he had quite a long break from climbing for various reasons. And then my youngest daughter took up climbing at the climbing wall. And it kind of led, that kind of led both of us to sort of have a go. 
And I actually thought, because I do have this mentality about not being able to do things physically, I actually thought I would be, I'm not scared of heights at all, but I just thought I'd be rubbish. I thought I, there's absolutely, like I was going up a four or something and I thought there's absolutely no possibility that I'm going to be able to do this. But I did and I really enjoyed it. I just literally just thought this is for me. I'm going to try and get better. And yeah, I just instantly really liked it. It's hard to explain. No, that's, but did it, sorry, did you say you started indoors? Yes. So that was at the climbing wall because that was where my daughter was having her climbing lessons. Um, yeah. And she was just kind of going, why don't you have a go? And I was like, well, yeah, okay. But what led the transition, what led, led you to transition outside? Um, well, I've always preferred to be outside than inside. I do like to be outdoors. I love the natural world and I do love I love to challenge myself and my husband is his main climbing career was as an outdoor climber that was his thing and so it would just seemed really natural um to want to do it and I now definitely enjoy it a lot more I do like indoor climbing you know I do like I really like it but um being outdoors yeah Although, since I started climbing, I've had, um, so I've got arthritis, I've had, since I started climbing, which was only like five and a half years ago or something, I've had a hip replacement and I've had a climbing accident and broken my ankle. So I've like had to sort of come back from stuff. It also wasn't A couple just like, of times. It wasn't like you just fell off the boulder at the indoor wall and had no. a climbing accident. No, it wasn't. It was a Coast Guard two lifeboats and a helicopter accident. <laughs> what? So There's I actually drama. don't know. What happened? Oh, so what happened? So I was trad climbing, sea cliff climbing, and I was abseiling down and I there was just, there was a swing on the rope and I can't actually remember what actually happened, but a guy we know very kindly went back to the crag the next day to collect our gear that we'd left there due to the accident. And he said that judging by where all like the blood was on the cliff, it looked like I must have caught, as I swung, I must have caught my leg in a like little crevice on the cliff. But I, I don't, the first thing I remember is I was, I thought I was abseiling. I knew I'd swung and I like had my, you know, hand down as you would do. And I thought, oh, I need to kind of get myself the right way around. How am I like facing this way? That's weird. And I looked down at my feet and I could see that I had like an open fractured ankle and I was kind of dangling in midair. My foot was pointing totally the wrong way and I could see what had happened. Um, so yeah, but I the actual moment it happened, I don't remember at all. And what what is life like now? Well, this was in January, so like, so I'm back climbing now. In fact, I, we've just been um, I've just spent four days. Um, I haven't been back doing trad yet, but I'm building up to it. You know, I'm building my head game back and physically because you know, but. Um, 
yeah, I'm back climbing indoors and outdoors and just striving to improve again and get back at least to where I was before, hopefully carry on improving from that because I haven't actually been climbing that long and I just really want to be the best climber I can be, which isn't going to be like a great climber, you know, compared to like the bros, whatever. But, um, <laughs> bros. Yeah, bros. <laughs> um, ah, you've been to a climbing wall, I can tell. <laughs> um, <laughs> I go to Westway all the time. It's like... <laughs> I practically live there. <laughs> Vest tops, um, and but I do hats. prefer climbing outdoors. But when but, you live do, in um, London, it's you know. Yeah. Do you feel like Do you feel like climbing is accessible as someone who came to it as a woman who came to it in her fifties? Um, no, <laughs> not really. No, I think it's quite um, well. My other the other thing I love to do is cycling, and I think climbing is more accessible to a woman in her 50s than cycling road cycling um but that's not saying very much that isn't saying very much to be fair um but it's there aren't that many people like me no well that's so interesting what do you mean do you mean culturally it's less accessible than road cycling sorry more no no it's more accessible than road cycling yeah i mean oh god definitely road cycling is like Everyone's in Lycra for a start. And, I mean, frankly, people don't expect to see 56-year-old women wandering around in Lycra shorts. They're quite happy to see middle-aged men doing it. But, you know, so, like, there's all of that. There's a whole, I mean, um, and it's, it's much more competitive. Like, there's, I think, like, I think people are more, so I think, I think climbing's a much more accepting culture. But having said all of that, there aren't that many middle-aged women doing it. So when you go to the crag or you go to the climbing wall or whatever, you don't see that many women in their 50s, no. Um, and I wish you could see, I wish there were more. Um, I have met some people, you know. Um, I mean, the most amazing community that I'm part of in the climbing world is the paraclimbing community, who are just like... They're mostly massively younger than me, but they're just the most amazing, funny, brilliant group of people to be supported by. And since I had my accident, um, I mean, I was kind of identifying as a paraclimber a bit anyway because of arthritis, hip replacement, all that. But since I had my accident, they've just been so incredibly supportive. It's been unbelievable, actually. That's just amazing. Lovely. So I don't know how I can say climbing is not accessible because I've kind of found just a lovely spirit in climbing. Well, it's and I'm not. I'm, uh, people just roll their eyes, but I don't think it's accessible. And you know, there are other episodes where it explores why. But I think where it's really interesting as part of this conversation as well is around homelessness and access to nature and the outdoors. Because <gasps> yes, yeah. And what Absolutely. That, yeah, and what that and what people lack, therefore, I would say. Totally, and I'm I'm a real believer in you know there are there are organisations that do provide um, outdoor experiences, particularly to young people who don't otherwise have them. But it has gone out of fashion a bit as a as a sort of as an end in itself. 
But I absolutely believe, I don't think you should need to prove a therapeutic benefit to take a group of young people who live in the circumstances I was describing in a B&B, to take a group of young people like that to experience the outdoors and to experience adventure. I think that just is a good thing of itself. And I, people see that about like the arts, don't they? Like that's, that's an end, art is an end in itself. But I think, I really believe that that experience of the outdoors and particularly adventure in the outdoors, at whatever your level is, I think that is an end in itself. Well, I, I mean, I am, as you are probably well aware, not a doctor yes. or an expert, but, you know, the Japanese prescribe forest bathing as a medical tool. You know, that's GP prescribed. And also, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but it's something like if you spend half an hour in an old growth forest, your heart rate will lower four to 10 beats per minute. Really? Yes. That's amazing. So we can, I mean, we can prove that. I mean, look at cold water immersion, look at cold water swimming, Look at what yeah. happens to somebody if they spend a night in a tent under the stars. You know, it, I mean, Completely. it does so much for us. And and I think Completely. we... Completely. And it's yeah. unique experiences. I mean, the one of the things I love about climbing, I love um, climbing in Dorset on the Jurassic Coast. And in fact, that's where I had my accident. <laughs> but, you know, when you abseil down and you're about to climb up a cliff, and you get to the bottom and you have a view on the world that you would never, ever otherwise have. There's like these huge ammonite fossils. There's like the, the view of the sea, the way the cliffs kind of stretch out either side of you. The, just, oh, it's just like a, a absolutely, it's, nobody should have to miss out on that. Well, there you go. Maybe that's do. it. But they maybe do. it already exists, but maybe that's, there's an initiative within shelter that needs to be brought to life to get people into the outdoors and nature. You've probably got it's... enough on your plate. <laughs> well, just a bit, but you know, but I do, I do believe in it really strongly in it. And, and just climbing generally, you know, you can see, um, I mean, my husband does a, is a climbing instructor and works with young people a lot. And I mean, you know, I just think it's, it's so important for young people to have those ex- those experiences, definitely. And it needs to, it, there just isn't the funding to make that available to the young people who probably would benefit the most from it or who couldn't access it with their own resources. Yeah. So, yeah. There's, that's a whole different chat about access, but hey. Um, yeah. Right. I'm over time, but... Um, yeah, sorry. I've probably no, no. too much. No, 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 no. Um, as if you do listen to some of these, as you'll know, I always end every episode. I do know. I've been really scared of this bit. Well, there you go. That's your answer to the first one. Um, <laughs> you're not allowed to no. rehearse. That's cheating. Um, no, I haven't. I... What scares you? Well, it's funny because, to be honest, completely honest with you, I was at the climbing wall earlier today and I thought about that question and I thought, oh, I can't really think of anything that scares me. And then I was on a route and I had a real massive bit of a flashback from the accident. I don't know what really brought it on, but I, could, I was like really quite freaked out. And I thought, wow, that's such a coincidence. <laughs> um, so, so that was a kind of 
being scared. But I think what scares me probably the most is I know that, you know, I'm not physically the most fantastic specimen. I've got quite a lot of physical challenges. And I, you know, I've got arthritis, which can only get worse. It doesn't get better. And so I guess what scares me is not being able to do um, the things that I really love doing that give me the, that give me the resilience and the mental space to do the stuff that I do professionally. That's what scares me, I think. And what brings you hope? Well, do you know, I actually think the main thing that brings me hope is just that I am inherently a hopeful person. I know that's a like pathetic answer in a way. And I should go, yeah, young people bring me hope. And like they kind of do. Um, but but actually what I I I think that um I I mean very fortunate to be a a hopeful, resilient, optimistic character. And there are lots of things that could really make me feel not optimistic but they don't and if I think about at root what is the reason for that I think it's just who I am that's a great answer I mean no one's ever I'm about to blow something I've been thinking about for ages just waiting for someone to say it but you've I don't want to put words in your mouth but no one's ever said choice and that's always one of the things that I think about hopefulness is it is you know not for everybody I recognize but it is a choice we do it's get a to skill choose. as well I think it's a choice, absolutely, and it's a skill. So I think I've learnt um, through my life how to how to maintain that resilience and hopefulness and optimistic outlook. And um, that's you know, it's 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 a skill. I think it's something you can learn. You can learn to focus on the stuff that you can do yourself. You know what. If I don't, if I feel challenged, I think, well, what, okay, what can I actually realistically do about it? And that's what I focus on. Yeah, it's, it's the way. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Amazing. Right. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much. No, God, thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk. The podcast is a Cold House production and is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Alex Hall and Orla Omori. You can get in touch at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk or follow along on Instagram at theadventurepodcast.